0: Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and today our guest is Gil Hochberg, who will be speaking with us about how we can develop a sophisticated approach to thinking about Palestine and Israel through the concept of the archive. Gil Hochberg is the Ransford Professor of Hebrew and Visual Studies, Comparative Literature, and Middle Eastern Studies at Columbia University where she's also the chair of the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies. She's the author of numerous books, the most recent of which is Becoming Palestine Toward an Archival Imagination of the Future, which we'll be talking about today and was published by Duke University Press in 2021. In this episode, Gil and I will think through the importance of archives, both historical archives themselves and the archive as an idea within the context of Israel and Palestine. As Gil argues in her book, the question of archives raises crucial issues about Israel and Palestine, developments in Palestinian culture, and the ongoing conflict at large. As she suggests, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has long been dominated by the archive of the past. For instance, over the decades, historians have unearthed archival evidence of the Nakba, the expulsion of the Palestinians in 1948. And this has shaped the ongoing debates on the politics of the region. But is there a limit to the political power of this archival knowledge about the past? as we've seen, even though we know about the Nakba, we're not exactly closer to any kind of justice or political resolution of the conflict. So, as Gil suggests, we might speak about the limits of the archive of the past and start to think about what it means to create an archive of the future. And so, in the book, Gill explores a number of Palestinian cultural projects that use archives and archival materials in a forward-facing way, as opposed to looking towards the past. So this set of issues about archives is clearly one that's of deep personal interest to me on a number of levels, intellectually, historically, also in terms of thinking through the politics of the conflict and Israeli and Palestinian culture, you know, which honestly, again, my own personal interest is one of the reasons why I reached out to Gil to be on the podcast. But I also think that there's something deep to consider here. In what ways can the idea of the archive contribute to our thinking about Palestine and Israel at large? What does it mean to talk about archives of the future? And in this light, especially considering Gil's critique of the political power or the lack thereof of the archive of the past, Uh, How and why does history matter? And so I hope that our conversation today will spark an interesting and important discussion about major questions about Palestine and Israel and how we can look at them through the lens of the archive. In the show notes, I've linked to an excerpt from the introduction of Gill's book, Becoming Palestine, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of Jewish History Matters. With Gil Hochberg. Hi, Gil. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you. Nice to be here.
0: The book is titled Becoming Palestine Toward an Archival Imagination of the Future. Can you start us off by speaking briefly about the meaning of these kinds of two ideas, which I think are really closely interlinked, but that are also really powerful on their own? What does it mean to talk about having? An archival imagination of the future on the one hand, right? And then also, how does this help us to understand the project or the idea of quote unquote becoming Palestine?
1: The title itself, Becoming Palestine, is something that includes in it, obviously, a kind of notion of futurity, of something that is still in a process, something that is still becoming. It also alludes for uh, those of us who have read and One does not have to uh, be familiar with it in order to understand the sense of it. But people who have read uh, Gil Deleuze's work and sort of have an appreciation of what this notion of becoming is for Deleuze or in Deleuze's work. I borrow much of my use of the term from Deleuze in the sense that uh, becoming stands for a kind of relationship that art and artistic creativity can uh, facilitate for us that in some ways history or the kind of more traditional ways of looking at archives that many times we associate with historical work forecloses. So for Deleuze, the idea is that there is a reality and there is the actuality of history that has happened. And we could look at that And you could find traces or witnesses or testimony for that in archives. And there is a potentiality, which is a reality that has not necessarily happened, but could have happened and could potentially happen and is still present as a potentiality in our present time. For Deleuze and I follow him in that sense, art is a way for us or directs our attention to that potentiality to possibilities that have or paths that have not been followed the archive that i look at is all made of art right so i look at uh, artistic works by uh, primarily palestinians also some israelis i and i look across literature at visual art at photography cinema dance But these are all creative articulations that function as my own archive, but I read them as works that reactivate archives. For me, the idea is all located really in the subtitle, which is that the attempt is to think with the artwork towards a creation of archive that activates our imagination or facilitates our ability to think and imagine a future that is, on the one hand, you can say attested through the present, but is still not attested in the sense that it hasn't left historical archival traces.
0: This whole idea of essentially the paths that were not taken or that still might be taken. And I think that this is a uh, central question when we're thinking about the history of Israel and Palestine, and also its future, and that has a particular potency in terms of scholarship, that has really, you know, over the past, you know, ten or fifteen years, emphasized ideas that were once possible, you know, things like binationalism and so on and so forth, that fell to the wayside at certain points. There's a broader context. To what you're talking about here. You already mentioned Dillo's. you know, for example, there's a whole bunch of theoretical writing about archives and quote unquote the archive with a capital A. As we think about the context, you know, both the context of the history of Israel and Palestine and the conflict, or the context of historiography on that, you know, the scholarship on Israel and Palestine, the context of archival theory, you know, can you maybe just speak for a moment about your own personal context here? You mentioned in the preface, right, that that actually this book is uh, perhaps fortuitous third part of a trilogy, right? With a couple of your other books. So the first book being your 2007 book, uh, In Spite of Partition, and then your second book in 2015, Visual Occupations.
1: When I wrote the book, I really didn't know that I'm writing a third part of uh, you know what I call this trilogy. And it sort of uh, took me by surprise. It, it really astonished me. Uh, when I discovered it, because it's interesting in the sense that I think it almost did kind of prove the argument of the book in the sense that I couldn't even trace my own archive of writing because it preceded me. It acted on me and and upon me and sort of created its own structure. When I moved out of Israel, uh, where I grew up, and went to grad school to um, join a PhD program at UC Berkeley. That was the first time in reality that I have had the opportunity to meet and have colleagues and friends who were Palestinians. And that was the first time that I got to be in spite of partition. For me, the realization that in some ways I had to leave Israel and Palestine in order to meet a Palestinian at This kind of level of, of, uh, you know, two individuals, two scholars, two independent subjects was mind-blowing. And so everything changed for me at that point, and I shifted my area of study, and Palestine became my main field of uh, interest. So the first book, In Spite of Perdition, is a revision, a drastic revision, but a revision of my dissertation. Uh, And in many, many ways, the subtitle of the book is Jews, Arabs, and the Limits of Separatist Imagination. That book was really about the kind of lost histories that can be summarized in those terms, Jew and Arab, or basically in the idea that Jew and Arab become mutually exclusive in an artificial way within a logic of partition. So in many ways, the main figure of this book is the Arab Jew or the Mizrahi, and anything that is associated with that figure in the sense that it's a book that deals with literature, and I do close readings of literature uh, in Hebrew and French and Arabic that are about this figure and how it transcends the logic of partition that you find in the national context of Zionism. The second book, Visual Occupation, is subtitled Violence and Visibility in a Conflict Zone. And I would say that that book moved from a, uh, in some way, a slightly more nostalgic frame to a frame that was very much invested in that present moment. I also lived for a year in Israel and Palestine, and I say Israel-Palestine because I did Uh, in order to write this book, did move daily across the West Bank and Israel and also through Abu Dis, where I studied at the Abu Dis University. So that book is a book that is really about the way in which the reality of partition sustains itself. So it's no longer about the past that could have been or that was lost, but really about what kind of violence, and it targets particularly the question of violence of the visual field, what kind of violence or what kind of uh, arrangements of visuality are kept and maintained so that the conflict actually continues to generate itself as a conflict that has no other option. And to be very, very blunt about it, you could say the the underlining argument of the book is that as long as Israeli Jews and Palestinians, each on each side of the conflict, sees reality differently, visually sees it differently, partition is maintained and there is no outside to the conflict, As especially if while they each see a different political reality, they are also kept from seeing each other. So that is that. Then we reach Becoming Palestine, my recent book, and again, I only after writing it realized that it was again returning to Palestine, but this time in this more hopeful, futuristic, potential framework in which I really insist together with the artworks that I'm reading that there is a way out and that the way out must begin with a kind of work of imagination. And that that work of imagination is what I call the archival imagination of the future.
0: I think that there's a lot to say here about kind of engaging with thinking about the past, the present, and also the future. And I think one of the key challenges, of course, not the only one, when we're thinking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is how to bring those different aspects together together. Obviously, history matters, I think I would argue, and a lot of people who listen to this podcast will agree with me about that, right? But if we only look to the past, then we can only see what did and didn't work in the past and not necessarily what something new that might have the possibilities to develop in the present and the future.
1: Correct. And I also think that history matters. One way is to suggest that the book is saying history doesn't matter, let's just look forward. But that's not actually what I'm arguing. I think what I'm more closely arguing is that the present itself must be read as an archive. And in that sense, the present itself is more of a history than we think it is. It needs to be read. It is not, you know, we don't need to rush from the present to the archive to read the past. While we have a present that we need to learn to read as an archive,
0: yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot to say here in terms of this notion of archives, you know, or the archive, you know, which is used in, in many different ways by different scholars, uh, also you know, within the public about ways in which archives permeate our society in different ways. You know, uh, we don't delete an email; we archive it. Right? There are all different ways in which the terminology and the ideas of archives really are. A manifestation of our information age, you know, and, and play different parts in it. And this kind of makes talking about archives complicated because there are so many different meanings and so many different approaches to it, which really represents, I think, the flourishing of this phenomenon you know, in 20th and 21st centuries and also within the world of scholarship, where it, I mean it's just an unbelievable amount of work has been published, you know, over the past 20, 30 years and, and beyond. What does the archive mean to you? Clearly it's it's not just historical archives where you go and you, you know, read through files, you know, and, and and find historical evidence, but there's something going on here about archives. You know, I also have my own take on this issue about what are archives, what do they mean? And I think we might disagree, but I think it might be useful for you to sketch out very briefly what it is that you think about when you talk about archives. You know, what is the archive, quote unquote? How is it useful? On a scholarly level, but also on a broader social level, as we think about Palestine and Israel.
1: Yeah, the main question would be where to begin. But yes, it's hard to talk about the archive or archives because when you start and you dig in, especially to all the endless amount of theoretical work that is done on the archive, you realize that it's not clear that everybody is talking about the same thing. In fact, most of the time people are talking about different things. So first of all, you know, I would... Lay out the fact. Most people, I think, when they hear archive, they're thinking in terms of literal archives, something that we imagine as either state archives or, you know, archives in some libraries, maybe some dusty files tucked away. And we're thinking about, you know, some scholarly historian going in there and, and digging and finding facts. I think that is the common understanding of archive. I don't want to go deep too much into, you know, the different kind of uh, accounts and um, philology of the term, and, and Derrida does that uh, for us, but, you know, he also does it in a particular language and, and assumes a particular kind of uh, genealogy, which we don't have to necessarily follow. But I do think what is important is to know that against this conception of archive as we think about it there are other things that has happened so one of the things you've mentioned we are in the 21st century and archives are no longer just these you know or even primarily these uh dusty places where only specialists go in most of the archives are digitalized and there is a profound democratization of archives. It's hardly even possible to make the distinction anymore between archives and databases. You know, one could argue that almost every kind of Google database is an archive. Uh, So it's significantly more spread. It's more democratic. And it's also, and again, this is not global wise. I'm well aware of the fact that there are places in the world that, you know, people cannot access uh, archives because they're locked by the state. But the arguments that have been made over the 20th century, including even the the later work by Derrida, that they're kind of so fixated on the centrality of state power in the archive, in many ways, don't hold in the sense that it's significantly easier today in most places to bypass that kind of centrality. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that because there has been so much work done on archives and the question of who has access to archive, because, of course, the connection has been made time and time again, that archives are almost always the archives of the victorious, because those are the ones who write down history, right? And so there has been much, and much of work uh, done theoretically and both at the level of activism about who has the access and who has rights to archives. And the, that matters because whoever has access to archives can write history, right? And whoever writes history can set the terms of uh, not just the past, but the present based on that past. So given that there have already been so many creative responses, and I think... There is a part in the book where I talk about the very, very vast work that has been done on alternative archives, right? So people all over the world, but also in in the context specifically of Israel and Palestine have created alternative archives, by which I mean archives that are not state mandated, that are not uh, limited to state documents that are actually based even on personal photographs, family photographs on um, private collections, you know. So all these kind of um, alternative archives are there too. And then uh, there is, uh, as you said, the idea of the archive, which is, you know, following uh, Michel Foucault and other uh, scholars uh, after him, this idea that archive is not Just a collection, but actually the order of things, right? The only way in which we can think or think through reality is through a certain order. And that order, for example, is the order that selects what goes in the archive, what counts as the past, what counts as part of an official archive, what counts as a an archival document to refer to in terms of a historical weight, et cetera, et cetera, and what stays out. I would add that in the specific context, this particular context of Palestine, these kind of questions are not questions that are outside of the political realm. These are questions that are not intellectual gymnastics. These are part of real intense and important political questions that I think everybody in the field, I mean, the field of Israel, Palestine, everybody, all the actors uh, from the lowest to the top, from state managers to uh, just people who are trying to live their lives know and react to, right? So there is a lot in the book that I account for that I can't account for here, but that has to do with what are the politics of Israel vis-a-vis its own state archives? What are the politics of IDF vis-a-vis its own archives? I would say very shortly that there is a a decidedly open approach, and I think it has its own merits and its own reasons. But then there are other factors, too, right? I mean, obviously, one of the things we all know is that uh, when Israel invaded uh, Lebanon in in, uh, in the early 80s, one of the things that happened or that were actually target of the operation were the elimination of the PLO archive. I mention all this because it is important to understand that archives in this context are not the privilege of, of a few scholars who are interested. These are um, the entire conflict actually uh, manifests through, but also is articulated through archives and who has access to it, who can produce them, et cetera.
0: Yeah, I I want to jump in here. There's so much that we could talk about. I feel like we could go on for a whole separate episode just talking about ideas about the archive. So I don't want us to get perhaps too caught up in the weeds of some of the theory. You mentioned Foucault even though, for instance, like Derrida, everybody talks about him, I actually think, as you mentioned, the whole idea of the order of things is actually perhaps even more powerful than Derrida's idea of archival fever. But in any case, I want to talk about some of the specifics of archives in, in Israel and Palestine, inasmuch as one of the things that I find really striking that you wrote about is that the the idea that the question of Palestine is a question of archives. I think that part of what you're saying here, and if I can try to distill a bit of what you said over the past few minutes, you've talked about the idea of the present as an archive, right? This is part of the expansion of the idea of archives, generally speaking, that we've seen over the past couple of generations, uh, you know, starting in the 70s with Foucault and so on and so forth. The idea that everything is an archive, not just the past as an archive, but also the present. And so part of what's bound up in that is what of the present is getting archived? What of the present is getting preserved and then made available to people in the future? And part of it also is the way in which archives are filtered through the present. And this is true both in terms of the way in which researchers, you know, both scholars and also regular people who go do whatever genealogical research or any kind of digging that they might want to do in, in the archives, you know, they're always looking at the past through their own lens in kind of a Kantian sense. There's a lot going on there, but there's also some very specific things that are happening in terms of Israel, Palestine, and, and archives. You, know, you talked about the democratization of archives, and I'm just thinking about the developments over the past few years at Israel's state archives, which are digitizing everything, at least in theory, but in reality are actually, in the name of privacy, censoring some materials. So that's part of what's going on there, right? It's on the one hand, opening up access to archives, which again, like I'm working on a bunch of new research and I can't travel to archives. None of us really can in a practical sense, you know, during this uh, COVID era. And so it's really useful to be able to just hop online and access archives, right? But like, that's also a point of control, a point of access of who gets to be able to access these things, who gets to determine what is scanned, what resolution, you know, so on and so forth, what gets blacked out. You know, also we think about like the question of archives and the 1948 war and the Nakba, there have been documented cases in the past few years of Israel's security services, you know, going and trying to to kind of remove things from archives that relate to the Nakba that we we already know about them, right? Uh, you know, people in the 80s were were publishing, you know, in the 90s were publishing on all this, and so the horse is out of the barn already. But there like there are people who are trying to kind of remove the evidence or to reclassify it, as it were. And then, of course, there's all sorts of other issues there with regards to which archives are open, right? You look again at this, this so-called new scholarship of the 80s and the 90s, and it was really tied into this question of getting access to archival materials on the 48 War, which were available in Israeli archives, but not in the archives of Arab states. And so there are really powerful questions there about the kind of the internalized Orientalism so like if you read the introduction to Benny Morris's groundbreaking book The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem, he talks extensively about the fact that like he can use Israeli archives but not Arab ones. And you talk a little bit about the orientalist angle within the question of archives in Israel and Palestine. But you know you see this in terms of like how SD Goytin, you know, he writes about the Cairo Geniza, you know, and he talks about in his introduction to the Mediterranean Society, which is his six volume opus on the Cairo Nisa, where he says, you know, somewhat simplistically that, that the various Arab states, countries, empires, you know, of the Middle Ages didn't keep archives, which is inherently false, inherently Orientalist. There's a lot that's bound up in the very specific aspects of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the struggle over archives, actual archives, but also about, as you talk about the archives of the present and the future, how do you look at these issues of archives in terms of Israel and Palestine, the way in which you talk about the problem of Palestine being a problem of archives, what does that mean to you? How, how does it help us to understand archives differently? How does it help us to understand Israel and Palestine differently as well?
1: To a great degree, the question of Palestine is a question of uh, archive, or, you know, I say it, we should look at it as a question of archive. Part of it comes from the powerful argument that was made by Edward Said in The Question of Palestine, where he really basically makes the claim that its stake is not just the question of rights over land and and historical injustice, but also the question of who has the right to narrate, right? So who has the uh, authority over memory and narrative, we look for in archives to create narratives and generate collective memories. So questions about who has the right, who, what memories go into archives, as you said, what systems have, have been archived, what, has, what haven't, etc. So Saeed emphasizes this idea of uh, Palestinians being um, dispossessed, first and foremost, of the right to narrate and memory. So that's one aspect that has to be acknowledged was in that, you know, you have later attempts, not just uh, the quote-unquote new historians of the 80s and 90s, but you have uh, much later work, like the work of Ronacella, the work of uh, Gish Amit, the work of Ariela Azulay, who have had access to Israeli archives, but not just to Israeli archives. They've had access to Palestinian archives that, or Palestinian collections that have been dispossessed and relocated in Israeli archives, right? So you added this entire new layer of not just one side has archive and the other doesn't, but that actually there is a Palestinian archive or archives and collections, collections of books, document films, but they are actually located because they've been stolen or they've been registered as abundant property or etc. They're present and located in Israeli state archives. That's the second level. I would say that my entrance into this discussion is already a later one. In some state, I think at some point, while you're right that politics of archives are complex and that while things are open, they're also closed. My argument is that while all of this has happened and is still very valid and important, and while there's also been attempts by, um, very important attempts by Palestinians to generate new archives, right? So the digital archive of the Palestinian Museum, you have Emily Jazir's um, archive at her family house in Bethlehem, and there are many other uh, attempts. like, like So all of these are very, very important. But what also... Matters, I think, is to remember that at this point, what is hidden or not hidden or discovered or not discovered, at best, it is a secret that we all know and are somehow either pretending that it's a secret or pretending that you can still eliminate it by just turning it into a rumor. But it is important to remember, I think, that in the context of Palestine, because of the intensity of the Disparity between one side, if you can call it that, that has vast documentation and access to archive, and another side that has been deprived of that right. The reaction to that has also been a certain saturation of archivization. And there are no more secrets to be found. And even if they are, even if we find another atrocity or 10 other atrocities, the facts of the matter, I think, are there. There were many, many decades in which nobody would ever imagine that we would use in public discourse the term Nakba. At this point, the New York Times uses the term Nakba. And now the question is, with this saturation of archives, I think some of the younger generation, and those are the ones that I am following among the artists especially, are thinking that the role of intervention, political intervention, at least artistic one, is no longer to dig for proofs because the burden of proving is no longer on their shoulders. There is a limit to how many times the oppressed needs to prove that they were oppressed or how many times we need to prove that historical atrocities took place. That sometimes the need to move towards articulating something else, which I call the archival imagination of the future, which is to generate an archive from material of the present and the past. But to use this material in order to generate an archive through which we can imagine a future becomes a more important, more immediate and more actively political act.
0: Yeah. I want to dig into this a bit because I think this is really central to your thinking about archives and the challenge that you present, right? And I think this is, this is similar in some respect to, to some things that many other people, we talk about archives, right? They're not just about the past. They're also about the present and the future. And the, the fundamental critique of history and of the archive and going back to 19th century anti historicism. I'm thinking about, for instance, like Nietzsche you know, writing about the futility of, of history and so on and so forth. And I think that you are pointing to something really vital and important as we think about the history of Israel and Palestine, about the challenges that face Palestinians in particular. Right? We talk about archives often, as you mentioned, in terms of state power, right? So what does that mean for a group of people who have, you know, throughout modern history, been denied state power or have been unable to, to construct sovereign state power or gain access to it. And so the archive, both historical archives, as well as, quote unquote, the archive of history as a whole, has been such a powerful force in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian history, both in terms of the way in which Zionist movement and the state of Israel have looked to the past as a kind of source of legitimization for the Jewish nationalistic project or to try to, to think about the past as potentially such a source, whether we're talking about archaeology, whether we're talking about Jewish history as a whole. you know, I write about the idea that bringing historical archives from Europe to Israel, it serves a symbolic role of Israelis trying to legitimize the idea that Israel is, quote unquote, a Jewish state, right? So there's all these different ways in which the whole Jewish nationalistic project seeks to mine the past right, both in terms of actual archives and also much more metaphorically uh, and in symbolic terms. And the Palestinians have not been able to do that necessarily to the same extent. But at the same time, the archives have been such an important mechanism for the development of the discourse and the debate about the kind of central points of the conflict itself, in particular, the question of the Nakba right in as much as as the scholarship of the 80s and 90s and beyond have really using historical archives been able to pull out to draw forth and place in the center of the public eye the you know the really damaging history of the expulsion of the Palestinians in 1948 also 1967 right we're talking and we're talking about the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and so i think part of what you are sort of suggesting here is that that the archives have played that role in the past, right? And the question is, you know, to what extent is the archive as a tool of history, is it perhaps no longer generative for the situation of Palestine and of the Palestinians? Because we've found all this history in the archives. Like, as you mentioned, like, how many more atrocities do we have to locate, to identify, to suggest that there should be some kind of change? And in reality, you look again from the 80s and the 90s up until the present, there hasn't been a huge amount of political change. Uh, And so you're suggesting that the archive as a historical entity perhaps doesn't have the capability. So there are a couple of things to think about here. The first one is, what are the ways in which the archive of the future is a potent force in a political sense? And in light of that, like, are you suggesting essentially that history doesn't matter when we're talking about all of this?
1: I want to be careful not to suggest that I'm saying that history doesn't matter. Of course, history matters in the sense that I would be the last person to suggest uh, that the future is devoid of the present, the present of the past, the past of the future. I mean, these are all connected. And for me, as a literary scholar, first and foremost, my education is in comparative literature. They're all narratives. And I know historians have finally succumbed to that idea, too. I'm not uh, naive about that either. I know that historians know that also. But What I would say is that um, two things. One is, yes, I do think that we have to remember that unlike certain histories, the history of the Nakba, the history of the state of Israel, is really a fairly short history, meaning it is the present. And I think there is something harmful in continuously treating the present as if it has a vast, long past because it distracts. From the fact that it is a past in the making, it is happening. It is we're not looking. This is not like a an event for which we're we're digging. In fact, what the the two chapters in the book that do talk about archaeology through you know how the art that I think addresses archaeology talk about the fact that oftentimes, particularly in the, the case of Israel and Palestine, archaeology does exactly that dismantles the present, very violently so, in the name of looking for traces for the past, right? So it really actively, you know, evacuates people, including uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, in the name of archival immediate necessities. So yes, I think that that's one thing to to remember, that um, what past are we talking about? It's a past that is still alive with us. The second is my work is greatly influenced, actually, if I would say it, that there is any critic of the archive that I am definitely influenced by it would be Cydia Hartman. And not that I work precisely in her uh, ways, but Cydia Hartman talks about fabulation as the work of the alternative to the historical archive in the sense that two things. One is where archives are lacking in certain minority voices, so to speak. She says, you need to invent them. You need to imagine them. If they're not there, create them. And I think it's a, you know, on the one hand, very simplistic argument. On the other hand, a very, very remarkably productive and uh, a completely different approach to the sacredness of the historical document. But the other thing that is more broadly, I take from her is the idea of imagination. The one of the problems I think that we have in the privileging of the archive and historically a source to truth in general, but in this context is particular, is this combination of the idea of authority, the past, data or evidence, and That's sort of considered level number one, the most important. And then you have some kind of thing that people treat lightly, imagination, other possibilities, art. What I'm trying to suggest is that that's where part of the main core problem is, that if we stop doing that and we actually take imagination as the most important aspect of how we do politics it inevitably also changes our relationship to the archive. One of the things that I think are remarkable is that anybody would agree that as dependent or strengthened by history as the Zionist movement is, it is first and foremost a remarkable work of imagination. That is where the power of the movement is. And that's where the power of any movement is. I think that the artists that I'm referring to in the, in these books, these uh, younger artists, I think they really get that sense, or at least that's how I read their work, as not just not willing to constantly feel that they need to prove that they were uprooted or their families were subjected to colonial um, violence, etc., but also that that they are in the position of imagining political realities, because only political realities that are imagined eventually come to be. You have to first be able to articulate them.
0: This notion of imagination is a really important one. This brings me back—I mean, this is like kind of a punching bag, I think, for a lot of people, but Shlomo Zahn's book, The Invention of the Jewish People, right? He's talking about invention as opposed to imagination. You know, I think it was in 2008 when it was published initially uh, in Hebrew— And as I mentioned, it kind of got a lot of hate from scholars anyway, very popular in the public sphere. But his whole argument was that the whole idea of the Jewish people was an invented notion. I think that part of what you're talking about here, which is really important for us to think about, is that all political activity is an act of invention and an act of imagination.
1: I don't want to argue with the arguments, but even if the arguments are correct, one could say that, and one could say another narrative. It depends on how you read that history. It's it's an attempt to discard a history through a historical reconstruction of you know a particular uh, set of evidence. I um I don't actually have a lot of uh, aff- uh, affiliation or affection for the book, and not necessarily because I don't agree or disagree. I actually don't think that that matters that much. I think that you know what matters again is the way in which we read the present, the way in which we read the past as it has hold on us, not the past as real or, you know, true or not true. That's significantly less important. And I think that strong political movements are not mobilized by facts that somebody finds in uh, the archive, including uh, Shlomo That That's not what gives a political uh, movement... It's power and it's not what makes people believe or want to believe certain things. So it's almost irrelevant.
0: This gets into like a big question, one that I think is a critical discussion that academics are having, but that also has been bleeding for the past few years into the public sphere, which is the meaning and the ramifications of postmodernism. I want to put that on the table, just leave it there, right? Because that's a whole separate conversation, right? And what does it mean to live in a post-truth World, or, or whatever we want to call it, right? In a lot of ways, I think scholars for decades, for decades, scholars have been talking about this idea that truth is malleable, you know, in, in different ways. And it's been kind of weaponized, I think, uh, in a political sense over the past few years, in particular. And I think that part of what is going on here is this question of who gets to shape the truth, so to speak. And I think that when you're talking about archives, it's about who gets to determine how the past is viewed, who gets to determine how it is then shaped into the imagination of the future. Again, there's there's I think a lot to unpack here, but I mean I think that that part of what is interesting is to see the way in which Israeli state power has enabled Israeli Jews and, and and the institutions that they have dominated, you know, in the course of Israel's history to take over materials that are of Palestinian provenance. You know, so for instance, I found it really uh, interesting the way in which you wrote about a a number of different projects, contemporary projects that are essentially trying to resituate history and other kinds of materials like film, archives, uh, you know, music, archives and materials, you know, which are held or have been collected by Israeli archival institutions like Israel State Archives or the National Library of Israel and kind of to reframe them in the sort of the Palestinian sense by Palestinians. And so there's a lot going on there in terms of this question of you know, Israeli looting of Palestinian archives and other kinds of historical materials. You mentioned Sella earlier in our conversation, uh, you know, Gishamit, you know, doing some really important work on the National Library, the so-called abandoned property section, and so on and so forth. I think we talked in very theoretical terms throughout this conversation about, you know, what is the archive? How is it that the notions of the archive are useful for thinking about Israel and Palestine. But you know, in very practical terms, you maybe want to like illustrate some of this with, with what you talk about in the book, about how it is that Palestinians are trying to reframe and you know, to resituate this stuff of the past in, in a new way, and what this means as they think about the future.
1: Let me say two things. One, just because you have mentioned postmodernism, I want to say that in many ways, in fact, I would say that this book is a proof and attestation to my strong modernist attachment, because I, uh, it's not that I argue that there is no truth. I actually argue, uh, very much similar to Adorno and Horkheimer and many of his, of the Frankfurt school scholars that, uh, there is uh truth. It's just that we need to know where to look at it. And I do think that I privilege art. I'm very well aware of it and creative, uh, activity and you know I'm not the, the first to do it. It follows, you know, it, it it that can be critiqued on its own, but it is my firm uh belief. So in that sense it's it's a very modernist uh project uh and not a postmodernist but More specifically, so in terms of examples, because I do think it's important to bring this down, the the conversation to examples. What was interesting for me as I was going through, uh, I didn't know what I would be writing about. I actually came to write this because I was teaching a graduate course in 2015 on the politics of the archive. Then I revisited it in 2016, 2017. So throughout these uh, courses, I was looking at a lot of different engagement uh, with uh, the archive. And most of the time, the artists I engaged were not necessarily directly saying, you know, we are working on archives. But what I eventually came to see in the works that I decided to write about and collect together here is that there was a certain imperative that they all shared. And it did have to do with the fact that rather than trying to dismiss or write against the Israeli archive. And the Israeli archive can mean anything from material that is collected or looted and present in the national library, or it can even be just the entire, say, like one of the chapters is about the archive of Israeli films about Jaffa or films that have been shot in Jaffa. So all kinds of archives. But the point of it is that rather than dismissing uh, these looking away from them, or saying, you know, this has been stolen, and this is actually belongs to us, etc. There has been a very, very interesting, close engagement that I see in these works, a kind of what I call a um, recitation or recitationality with the archive. So there's, as you said, a kind of um, engagement with the archive, with the Israeli archive, with the notions of this archive taking over, not in order to just dismiss or relocate, but to generate something more complex. So maybe one example that I would like to mention is a short film by uh, Jomana Mana, who is a citizen of uh, Israel, Palestinian artist. Uh, The film is uh, called The Magical Substance Flows Into Me. It was done in 2015. You know, and very briefly, the film... You can call it a reworking of a certain archive, and the archive is the original archive is the archive by the German ethnomusicologist Robert Lachmann, who uh, in 1936, after being fired from his position at the um, National Library in Berlin, moves to Palestine. He actually only ends up being there four years, and then he dies. He also does not actually get a uh, an official position at the uh, Hebrew University, but he does have a radio uh, show, and he has a, a radio show. He specializes in what he calls uh, traditional Arab music. What Jamana Mana does in this film is that she revisits the archives of Robert Lachman that are all collected in the National Library in uh, Jerusalem. The archives of Lachman include hours and hours of his recordings of various Arab musicians playing all across, this is 36 to uh, 40, so all across uh, different locations in Palestine, both Jewish, um, Arab, Palestinians, Druze, all different local musicians. And it includes his notes and his annotations from the radio show that he broadcasted for the BBC those years. What she then does is she revisits all of the locations where his radio show has initially or originally recorded musicians from. She herself goes with her own little recorder and records musicians of uh, the current generation, part of them even related familially to to the original musicians that uh, Lachman has recorded. And the film uh, remarkably does, I think, a few things that can, through them, I can make an example of the broader argument because on the one hand, Jomana Mana creates a new archive, right? She actually records these present-day musicians across the land in Jerusalem in central Israel, in the West Bank. So she has all these recordings. But at the same time, she also insists on, and in the film you see it, on making connections between Robert Lachman's own history, about which the film discusses it, and the documentation of Robert Lachman in the archive. In the film, there are also images of his archive and himself, and you also hear his original voice from the radio show. So she creates this relationship between these two archives, uh, so to speak, her new one and his, her based on his. So um, she is in conversation with Robert Lachman, but she's not just in conversation with Robert Lachman. She's in conversation with the ways Robert Lachman's collection was archived. So Robert Lachman, who was the last thing you could say about him was that he was a Zionist, but just as the way that he wasn't you know, politically active in any other way. He was, as she calls him, a very good ethnomusicologist orientalist, that he was forced to leave Germany because of historical circumstances. And he found himself in Palestine. And he really did think that he could, through his radio show, produce a kind of affinity between what he discovered to his shock was a Distinction between Arab Jews and Arab non Jews in the land through music, right? Because they all shared what he called Arab music. So she returns to his belief and not in a mockery way at all, actually in a very respectful way, but also while acknowledging the kind of maybe naivete, maybe uh, Orientalism that is involved, not by fully dismissing it, but by showing how in the present reality where she is actually crossing the same land that he did, but now it's full of walls and fences and checkpoints, that in this reality, that kind of dream of 1936 is nostalgia at best. But when she presents these two together, I think that's where, you know, it's a question of how one reads it. I read her work as suggesting that it is the very juxtaposition of what could have been and what has become totally impossible—the juxtaposition of the two—are the field from which we need to create a an archive of imagination through which we envision a different
0: future. What is the significance of this particular set of examples to think differently about questions about Israel and Palestine, about its history and, and its future? In as much as you talk about Jemana Mana's film, right? This is a, a film. That clearly caught your attention, but it hasn't necessarily been widely circulated, right?
1: No, uh, all of the art that I talk about has been, you know, uh, somebody told me in sort of a, a critique way that it's a biennale style art, meaning it's not even, you know, it's not Oscar nomination.
0: My point is kind of exactly this, that that you're talking about uh, this kind of artwork that is being produced and is representing new developments in Palestinian culture, right? But but it's kind of on a smaller scale of its reception. And the same thing can be said about the Lachman archive, right? You know, like, okay, so you have this collection that's sitting in uh, in the National Library of Israel. And again, it's not like you've got droves of people going to utilize this archive. And that's kind of the nature of any archival collection. There are very few archival collections that, that have a ton of people going to look at them constantly. You know, so you kind of like, um, you know, picked out a really fascinating example that indicates really crucial issues about Orientalism, historical memory, like you kind of glossed over the 36 moment, right? You know, what does it mean to kind of think about the possibilities of the future, you know, at the moment of the Palestinian Arab revolt against the British? And what does it mean for Lachman to have essentially archived this moment through culture, right? Through the recordings, you know, at this moment, right? There's all sorts of moving pieces here to think about. Why does this example matter? You know, as we try to think about this big picture issue.
1: First, let me give you my most hopeful answer. My most hopeful answer is that Becoming Palestine will become such a bestseller that these artists will now feature everywhere all the time. But on a more realistic uh, level, one answer I can give is that once again, I am in that sense very Adornian. I do think that it is going to be that change and political change and political important intervention is found in uh, more, call it avant-garde art, and that I do think that it's the role of the artist and the philosopher to bring about change. But, you know, that's, again, a very modernist uh, presumption, and one could argue that it has absolutely no legs. However, all of the artists that I talk about and also the kind of um, archival work that I look at, including Sadia Hartman, are work that do focus on what can be called minor archives. And I think that uh, the idea of, you know, the, the minor and the less significant or the less bombastic has proven itself on all different kind of, of levels to offer serious and important interventions. Do I think that, you know, that by looking at the artists that I look at, I'm offering an immediate political solution? Of course not. But do I think that we have a choice or that, you know, that I have a choice? I also don't think so. I think that the problem, it's sort of chicken and egg, right? The problem is that we continue to establish the distinction between, you know, what matters and what doesn't matter, what is minor and what is major, what is facts and what is imagination, and as long as we do that, obviously within the logic conceptual framing of, you know, what matters is masses and historical facts, then these kind of materials won't won't matter. If you take the argument seriously, they do matter.
0: Can I just like ask you to, to dive into this a bit more? Because I don't think that I could agree with you more about these issues, which is to say that just because something is not a blockbuster hit, right? It doesn't make it insignificant. This, I think, is kind of like the central argument of what I'm doing with this podcast project as a whole, which is to say that the Jews, right, Jewish history is fairly insignificant on a global scale, right? When we're talking about the number of Jews historically and also today, Jews are like a rounding error of world history. Like uh, we're talking about the ways in which Jewish history matters for understanding our world, right? So I definitely agree with you 110% that, you know, just because some of these works of art, you know, are not, you know, being nominated for Oscars, and one can also ask, how is it possible for a Palestinian film to be nominated for an Oscar, right? You know, there's fundamental systemic challenges to that, right? Anyway, the, the point being, it's like, just because something doesn't get that international or global play, it's still significant. So in that light, right, you know, the same way that that we talk about like Jewish history, you know, but we can still get kind of big lessons from the history of a small people, right? I mean, what are the kind of the big takeaways from looking at these avant-garde art pieces that don't get as much attention as perhaps they probably should?
1: One of the things that I brought to my mind because you you mentioned uh, Jewish history in this context is that what is very important is that some of what it comes out through these works that I look at at these books is that, for example, in this case of Jumana Mana. Here is a Palestinian artist who returns to a what is for most Israelis, although not for German musicologists. I found out that Robert Lachman is a very, very important figure in the history of musicology. But most uh, uh, Jewish Israelis have not heard of Robert Lachman ever. But here is a Palestinian uh, filmmaker for whom this particular history becomes a very important part of her history. This is what is so fascinating about it is that it is these works also allow us to see that the borders of what we think is, you know, Jewish history or Palestinian history are themselves not clear, right? Because there is a present and at the present, whether people like it or not, most of them don't, as we are well aware. The present, the reality on the ground is that Palestinians and Israeli Jews are sharing the present in very, very, very antagonistic ways. But they are located in the same time and space, in a very small space, in fact, and that becomes smaller and smaller because it's divided insanely. I think what I'm trying to suggest is that the reason why it is so important is that in order to find different angles for which to look at this divided reality, we have to look at the edges. We have to look at, you know, or again, back to Deleuze, we have to look at minority literature.
0: There's a certain dichotomy here between the way in which Palestinian archives have so often been described or written about or, or thought about, which is the question of loss, which is a dominant narrative of the history of Palestinian archives, perhaps even of Palestinian history as a whole. We talk about the ways in which Israel and Israeli Jewish institutions have Taking control of Palestinian archival materials, removing them from the hands of Palestinians, in different ways—we've uh, you know, we've talked about a couple of scholars briefly that, that have engaged with this, with this really important question. You know, so there's, there's this dichotomous relationship between the idea of loss, as it is connected with the archives and also Palestinian history as a whole, and also the question of regeneration or building towards the future. You know, the possibility to create. A future, whether that's an archive of the future or just a political future itself. So when I think about why this is such a really exciting work, is that is that it helps us to to focus on this dichotomy. And you know, as we move towards our conclusion, how is it that looking at this idea of an archive of the future helps us to to reframe or think in new ways about Palestinian identity, about Palestinian history, about politics and the conflict in in new ways uh, through the lens of this dichotomy, which is so bound up with this question of of the specific Palestinian archives and also this artistic work that you're engaging with?
1: There is a tension, I would say, a kind of dialectics between, in, in my work itself and in all of the artists that I look at, between this sense of loss and the sense of regeneration. It's... I personally have not necessarily thought in those terms, but I think that's exactly true. There is a kind of, um, pool that is a pool of, uh, kind of a melancholic pool, um, which is also, you know, just a mournful of destruction and loss and loss of archive, loss of land, loss of home, loss of memories, and yet an incentive for regeneration. And I think it's found in each one of these, uh, of, of the art uh, art, art projects, uh, that I look at. And once again, I just want to for uh, the audience mentioned that when I say art, I I also include literary projects and dance. So I'm not necessarily talking just about visual art. But I think that my desire was, uh, this was to move our discussion of the archive in the context of Israel and Palestine from the strong, strong pool, which is very important, but that again, I suggest that It is the time to take the step beyond the mournful and the uh, recognition, which is very important, of the wrongs done, including wrongs done to the archive. And to look at the power of regeneration as a proof to the power of imagination the power of the archive of the present, and the power of life to refuse to subject to the laws of the archive as history. There is a power in here that is about we are going to work with what we have, and the working material is not necessarily the most uplifting. It is all a work about uh, erasure, elimination, destruction, but Returning to this work with a belief that including all people involved, particularly the Palestinian artists I'm talking about, there is an ability and the right to reimagine. Right. So uh, there's that famous saying that people love to return to that Godard in the past has said that Jews are the material of fiction and Palestinians are the material of the documentary because his argument is that uh, Jews have the, have won the right to create fiction post the Holocaust, and uh, Palestinians are relegated to the fact because they have to prove. I think that, in a way, as a response to that, there is some kind of a rejection of being relegated to the fact and a demand to be part of the body of imagination.
0: Wow. Thank you. I think that that is a really powerful and profound way of thinking about the dynamics. Of the conflict, right? You know, who has the power to imagine a future? I wish we had another hour; we could dive into that more. But we're mostly out of time. So, thank you so much, you know, for this conversation. It just occurred to me a moment ago you know, as you we were talking about this, um, and we've been talking about um, you know, who has the power to leverage the archive and what this means in terms of of the conflict. I was just thinking about the events last year of uh, Sheikh Jarrah, and this question of Palestinians living in, in these apartment buildings you know, in the real estate dispute in the courts and, and how this manifested itself, you know, in terms of um, you know, the the resurgence of violence and so on and so forth. I think that part of what's interesting here is that when you talk about the question of Palestine being a question of the archive, well, Sheikh Shara really proves that point in, in a really powerful way, which is that you have, you know, Israeli Jews who are trying to leverage the literal archival documents from the Ottoman period from the nineteenth century to say, look, we have the deeds, you know, we have the receipts for this plot of land, for this building and so on and so forth. When you think about the question of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict through the lens of the power of archives, you know, this is just one out of potentially many examples that we could talk about that it's, I think, profoundly true to talk about the conflict as a question of the archive.
1: I think it's a great example. And it's also a great example to show that, you know, here you have the present as an archive you do know, to demonstrate this, but the present as an archive bases itself on you know the very selective but strong attachment of the Israeli authorities to the Ottoman laws whenever it comes to distribution of of land right so the question is what to do is it in my mind, what to do is it is precisely to look at it and look how the politics of archives are unfolding in this, which is exactly what you. But that doesn't mean just returning and saying, well, you know, we stop by recognizing this because here is the uh, Ottoman uh, document. It's asking, "Okay, what is the role of this document right now in in this moment, in this conflict, in this situation? Right. Uh, And that's where the beginning of the imagination work for the future takes place.
0: Right. Right. I mean, I think like when you look at that particular dispute, right, it's about this question of which archive is more important. Is it the paper archive of the 19th century? Is it the archive of the present, of these people who have been living there for decades? And a part of the story there is the power of the Israeli authorities to choose which archive is going to win out over the other.
1: Correct. And that's why, you know, if there's anything that modestly I'm hoping that I could do is at least with this uh, book, is at least contribute to the widening of the archives that we look at. And you know, not predetermining which ones count as archives.
0: Well thank you again so much. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm just glad that we were able to have it. So thank you.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: And thanks to you for listening to this episode. I hope that it piqued your interest in Gil Hochberg's recent book, Becoming Palestine Toward an Archival Imagination of the Future. As I mentioned before I've posted a link to the book's introduction. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.